you would, open your Bibles, please, to Nehemiah chapter 3. The book of Nehemiah chapter 3. So last week we began our study, the book of Nehemiah. The book opens some 13 years after Ezra's arrival in Jerusalem. And it tells the story of the third wave of exiles returning. Ezra being the second wave of such return. Nehemiah hears a bad report about the situation back in Jerusalem and for four months he mourns, he fasts, he prays. He mentions at the end of chapter 1 that he was cupbearer to the king, a high position, certainly more than a glorified butler. Then, at the time which is apparently the celebration of the new year, the king comments, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Nehemiah is very much afraid because this is unacceptable behavior in the presence of the king. He explains that Jerusalem lies in ruins. Why shouldn't he be sad? So the king asks him, what do you want? Which is quite remarkable. A king asking his servant, his, well everybody's under the king, asking somebody under him, what is it that you want? And in that moment, Nehemiah prays. And then he lays out a plan to the king. He tells of the project, the timeline set by Nehemiah, not the king the needed documents, and the needed supplies. The king gives his approval, which leads Nehemiah to travel to Jerusalem. He makes a nighttime survey or inspection of the walls so that he knows what needs to be done. So I said last week, if there's only one thing that we should learn from this portrait of Nehemiah, it is that he is a man of prayer. And this is certainly evident in his four months of mourning, fasting, and praying. Um, but perhaps even more so in that brief, private, internal moment in the presence of the king. When the king says, what do you want? Nehemiah prays and then he speaks. One could try to make the case, I don't think well, but could try to make the case that Nehemiah did not need to pray when he was in front of the king. After all, he had been praying for four months. But I think such thinking reveals what I suspect is sinful thinking. And that is, I'm convinced ever since Adam and Eve sinned, we all want to be independent from God. That is the goal, I think, of every human being. In the series that we finished recently on memory, we saw that what it means to be human involves five aspects. To be dependent, to be embodied, to be relational, to be broken, and to be loved the first one that I think is truly important for us. To be human is to be dependent. We are creatures that are wholly and totally dependent upon God. There's nothing we have that has not been given to us by God. And while our lives may be seen as a journey, a journey in which each step along the way brings different needs, challenges, opportunities, at every step of the way we are dependent upon God, whether we acknowledge it or not. So the, for the person who doesn't pray much, if, if at all, when faced with a crisis or a really difficult situation, they may do what Nehemiah did. They may cry out to God briefly, internally. They may just say, help me. But what this may reveal is an attitude that I've got everything else covered, but this crisis I can't deal with. Everything else, I, I can take care of that. But this I need your help on. And the reality is that's not true. At any moment, any point in our lives, 
We are totally dependent upon God for everything. But I also think there may be an occasion where someone may say, well, I've prayed about this a lot. I've prayed about this situation a long time, and so I don't need to pray anymore. And I think in both cases, the person is saying to God, basically, I've got it covered. Either everything else in my life or this particular crisis, because I've already prayed, uh, I've got it covered and I don't need help. I think our sinful nature tries to blend, uh, blind us to the reality that we are always dependent upon God for everything. I think for a non-believer, this blindness is ongoing. But I think for the believer, this blindness sneaks in covertly under the guise of spiritual maturity. I don't need to pray about this. I'm spiritually mature. Or knowledge of scripture. Or I've, I, I've grown as a believer, and so I don't pray about those things anymore. Uh, somewhat somewhat related, but I remember in Bible school uh, a professor telling us that a friend of his had so organized his Sunday school, he said, you know, our Sunday school is so organized we could run it two years without the Holy Spirit. Wow, (laughs) that's saying something. But in fact, I think that may be the way we live our lives. Whether we pray a lot or if we don't pray very much, both, I think, reflect an attitude that I've got the big things covered. Or if I don't, I've got all the other, the little things covered. So Nehemiah is dependent upon God. And yet, having said that, he has in fact worked out a plan. He's thought it through. He's worked it through. If I go to Jerusalem, I'm going to need a safe passage. Uh, We're going to need timber to rebuild the gates. Uh, I'm going to be gone for X number of months. He had thought it through. So God, in fact, has given each of us gifts, abilities, that we are to use with the recognition that we are dependent upon God. So we're not to be passive. Prayer is not passive. We recognize that God has enabled us to do certain things and we should work to sharpen and hone those gifts and yet at the same time rely upon God. One author has described the possible danger we face as the peril of the pendulum, that we tend to go to one of two extremes, that either we take matters into our own hands, thinking that ultimately we are the ones who are going to solve the problem, but in Nehemiah we see a man who prayed and trusted God, or we trust God, but we don't make any preparations ourselves. We pray and pray and pray, but it doesn't occur to us that we probably should think about this and work it through and come up with a plan. And in Nehemiah, we find a man who did pray a lot, but a man who, in fact, had come up with a plan, one that the king approved. Today, in chapter 3, the project, the work, begins. This is a chapter of 32 verses, and it gives us the names of various individuals, I think 75, who participate in the rebuilding of the wall and the gates of Jerusalem. I want to point out several things uh, as we go through this. First of all, the geography. We are unfamiliar with most of this material. So basically what Nehemiah does as he tells us the story is he begins at 12 o'clock. That's the northern part of the wall of Jerusalem, above the temple. And then he works around counterclockwise till he comes back to 12 o'clock again on the northern part of the wall. What we see is a coordinated approach 
to working this project. You find in this chapter, as we read through different parts of it, next to him, next to them, the next section, next to it, at least 27 times, it depends on the English translation you have, we find this phrase. And if you will look at the first four verses here in chapter 3. Eliashib the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Emri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hasina. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel made repairs and next to him Zadok son of Baana also made repairs the next section was repaired by the men of Dekoah so it would seem that a great deal of preparation went into this a great deal of planning to make sure that everybody knew where he was supposed to be this group is supposed to be here and next to them and then next to them this in fact has been worked out And Nehemiah makes sure that everybody knows where they're supposed to be and they have the resources they need and they have proper supervision. It would seem that many of the assignments are based on where the men lived. So if you will look at verse 23. We'll read through to uh, to 30. Beyond them, Benjamin and Hashab made repairs in the front of their house. And next to them, Azariah, son of Maaseah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. Next to him, Benui, son of Henadad, repaired another section, from Ezariah's house to the angle and the corner. And Palal, son of Uzai, worked opposite the angle and the tower, projecting from the upper palace near the court of the guard. Next to him, Padiah, son of Parush, and the temple servants living on the hill of Ophel made repairs to a point opposite the water gate toward the east and the projecting tower. Next to them, the men of Tekoa repaired another section from the great projecting tower by the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priest made repairs, each in front of his own house. Next to them, Zadok of Emmer made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the guard at the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. Next to them, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. Now, we don't know if they were assigned or if they volunteered. We're not told. But many of the men worked near their homes, near their houses. I think one could argue that this would mean that they were more personally involved, highly motivated. They didn't have to travel across town to work. It was right there in their front yard or behind their house. And one could also argue that if there was any danger, they were not likely to run away because they would have to defend their families and their homes. So they are, in fact, exactly where they should be. But it isn't only people who live in Jerusalem who work. We also find that the people who live outside had a part. The men from Jericho, Tekoa, we've read twice already, Gibeon, and Mizpah. They were assigned the parts of the wall where there were few houses. And this is, these are the places where they worked. Now, this may be a stretch. I don't think it is. But there was a need for supervision. 
and we find officials or rulers are mentioned as working. So if you will look at verse 9. Rephiah son of Hur, ruler of a half district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. So he is the ruler of half district of Jerusalem. Adjoining this, Jediah son of Harumath made repairs opposite his house. And Hattush, son of Hashabeniah, made repairs next to him. And it goes on down to verse 19. We find that the rulers are in fact engaged in this project. I think they are used to governing. People are used to listening to them. They have authority. Um, But I think also it tells us that they are involved. They're not just sort of kicking back. They in fact are involved. It's hands-on. But they are giving guidance and wisdom as men rebuild the wall and the gates. And then you will notice if you read through chapter 3 that everybody works no matter their vocation. One might think rebuilding the stone walls and the wooden gates, this calls for masons and carpenters. But in fact, we find that there are others involved. I already read verse 1. If you look at verse 1 again, Eliashib the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. Verse 22 The repairs next to him were made by the priest from the surrounding region. So the priest participated. And one could say, well, this is sort of beneath them. They do spiritual things. They do sacrifices. They burn incense. And here they are working with their hands, rebuilding the gate and the walls. But also there are others. Goldsmiths. If you look at verse number 8. Oziel, son of Harhiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. And Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. In verse 32, the last verse. Actually, I think it's verse 31. Next to him, Malchiah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the the inspection gate and as far as the room above the corner. We have goldsmiths. Now, I would think that someone who is a goldsmith works with their fingers, with their hands. And all it takes is a shifting rock, a falling rock, to crush their fingers and basically take away their vocation. They're no longer able to work with their hands. And yet, there they are. The perfume maker that is mentioned, I would think there would be a bunch of dust flying around, and yet he is involved. Even the temple servants, in verse number 26, are involved. And then the last verse, verse 32, and between the room above the the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs. One could say, merchants? What are are merchants doing? Well, everybody pitches in. Everybody, in fact, is supposed to work. What about the women? Don't forget the women. One might get a sense, perhaps even from what I've said today, that this was solely a project for the men, that the women folks stayed home. Maybe they cooked meals for the men to eat. Uh, Not so. Look at verse number 12. Shalom, son of Halohesh, ruler of a half district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters what we find is that families are involved in this project, including the women, even though only one group of women is mentioned here, the daughters of Shalom. 
It may be, in fact, that Shalom had no sons. We don't know. And so Nehemiah wants to make clear that it wasn't just him. His family, in fact, was involved. His daughters helped out as well. Uh, I have no doubt that the work that took place involved a lot of women. They're simply not mentioned. What are mentioned are the heads of households. And in this one particular case, in verse number 12, Nehemiah points out, oh yeah, he may not have sons, but his daughters were there as well. I tell my students, even though they don't read about women in history, they're there. They're working. They're taking part. And this is the case even in the rebuilding of Jerusalem. In this chapter, Nehemiah lists 75 names. People by name. And he lists 15 different groups of people. Priests, goldsmiths, perfume maker, temple servants, and so on. This would seem to indicate that he knew these people by name. He knew where they worked and he knew what they had accomplished. He wasn't a macro manager, but he wasn't micro either. He let them do the work, but he knew who they were. And this is something we find throughout scripture. Though it may aggravate us sometimes as I stumble over the names, we read these names that are so unfamiliar to us. As I tell people when they don't like reading the genealogies, how would you feel if your name was there? Yeah. God cares about the individual, and the individuals are mentioned here by name. Two things I want to point out before moving on, and the first is, not everybody got involved. Let's be clear that we might have this rosy picture that everybody sort of joined hands and got to work. Look at verse number five. I read the first part of it earlier. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. These men are the exception. They're not the rule. And in some strange way, I think it should encourage us to know that not everyone joined in because we might get discouraged when not everyone participates, when only a handful perhaps do, only some do. Um, Why didn't they participate? We just don't know. Did they think it was beneath them? Um, Did they think it wasn't their responsibility because they were from Tekoa, not from Jerusalem? Were they afraid to be identified with the Jerusalem project, that they might face further harassment from their enemies? We simply don't know. What we do know is their failure to participate did not stop the project. It still went on. And I think that should encourage us. Um, As someone told me many years ago, if you want perfection or nothing, you'll get nothing. You know, if you want 100% participation, yeah, um, that might happen, but if it doesn't, it shouldn't slow you down. And then the second thing, and to be honest, I don't know quite what to make of this. It's in verse number 20. Next to him, Baruch, son of Shabbai, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the entrance of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. Again, this is a case of we simply don't know. But Nehemiah singles out this man, um, Baruch, um, someone who worked zealously. The uh, English Standard Version has a note, vigorously. The King James has earnestly. Well, I I would think all these guys sort of worked hard, but for some reason this man is singled out. He caught Nehemiah's eye, and Nehemiah records it. That this is a man who worked particularly hard, and it's worth noting. I think there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, 
people should be recognized for the work they have done. So, here we are. Chapter 3 ends. Everything is going well. Everything is going smoothly. What can go wrong? Opposition. And in the first three verses of chapter 4, we read about this opposition. It is worth noting that in the Hebrew version of the Old Testament, verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 4 are actually put in chapter 3. So lest you think chapter 3, this is great, everything's wonderful. At the very end, uh, the editor puts these three verses in to let us know of the opposition. The opposition takes the form of ridicule requires no factual argument, no ammunition as such to say point one, point two, point three. It's simply ridicule, mocking, scorning these people. Look at verses one, two, and three. When Sanballat heard that they, we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? If even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. Sanballat was the governor of Samaria. He's always mentioned first when it comes to the opposition to this project. So I think he was the instigator of the opposition. He was angry and greatly incensed. So he resorts to ridicule. He begins a propaganda campaign. And he does so in front of his followers. The people that are there with him. uh, His associates, the army of Samaria. In case they decide they're going to attack. So he sort of gives them a rah-rah speech to sort of tear down the Jews. What do they think they're doing? And his sidekick is always there, Tobiah the Ammonite. And I like the way the ESV has it. Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. I can almost imagine a kid sort of huffing and puffing. Yeah, what do they think they're doing? They think they're so cool. They think they can build this wall. Um, And what we find here is scorn and ridicule. Contempt. In some ways, this is, I don't know if I would say the most difficult thing to deal with. See, if somebody made a factual argument, if they said, you know, point one, point two, point three, then you could have a counter argument. And you could argue and say, no, you're wrong on point one, you're wrong on point two. Um, But when someone ridicules you, um, it's propaganda. Agitprop, you know, agitation. I mean, let's, let's drive these people crazy. So how does Nehemiah respond? Nehemiah respond. The two ways we would expect. Prayer and work. Look, if you would, at verse number four. Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. For they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it had reached half its height. For the people worked with all their heart. This prayer is called a prayer for vindication. And I don't think, the language is quite strong. I don't think that Nehemiah is like saying, oh poor us, look at what these people are doing. This is God's project. God inspired Nehemiah to do this. God has directed him to do this and has opened doors 
The king said, go. The king gave him uh, the passage, gave him access to the royal force. God has opened it. This is God's project. So Sanballat and Tobiah are not merely speaking against the Jews. They are opposing the project of God. That's why Nehemiah prays. He recognizes uh, that this isn't simply against him, but against God. But as we've seen, Nehemiah doesn't simply pray. He works, and the people worked with all their heart. As we will see, the Lord willing, next Sunday, the opposition continues. But there are two things I want us to consider here at the end. First of all, we should not be surprised by opposition. Jesus told his disciples on the night before he was crucified, in John 15, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will also obey yours. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. There will be opposition. Let's be careful, particularly living when and where we do. This is not playing the victim card. This isn't saying, oh, poor me, look at what people are doing. I'm being persecuted. Uh, No, there is a recognition that there is and will be ongoing opposition to anything God is trying to do in the world. And if we are a part of what God is trying to do in the world, we should not be surprised by opposition. We shouldn't be surprised by persecution. This is the history of the church. Why would we expect anything different? But we also need to be careful because of living when and where we do. People play the victim card. um, And oftentimes... Christians uh, call something opposition when in fact it's just their own folly that's being reflected on them. If they're mocked, if they're made fun of, or something happens to them, they say, oh, this is persecution. It's like, no, not really. Uh, Either you made a bad decision, you made a bad call, you said something you shouldn't have said. Don't somehow put it on people to say, I'm being persecuted, I'm suffering for Jesus. I think that happens more rarely today than we might imagine. We shouldn't be surprised if it happens, but let's not say we are victims. The second thing, and this ties in with what we are going to do after the service, and that is we should be aware of our dependence upon God, and this dependence should be reflected in our praying. Nehemiah prayed for four months before he was in the presence of the king. And then when that moment came and the king said, what do you want? He prayed again in an instant. There's no point in his life where Nehemiah did not call out to God. The project we have begun and today sort of take off, we've been praying about this for some time now. We will continue to pray. We pray as we assemble the packets and as we take them and put them in our cars and in our homes. And as we give them out, as Nehemiah did in that moment before the king, we should ask God for wisdom, for grace, for guidance, that we would give it to the people of his choice. 
We should trust that God will bring, as a result of our praying, He will bring people across our path that perhaps have been across our paths and we've just sort of neglected them, or people that we have not seen. And in that moment, we should look to God for wisdom that we will do what is right. We would recognize that the person is not merely a nuisance. Uh, We will not see them only for their weaknesses, their frailties. But we would, in fact, by God's grace, see this as an opportunity to share the love of God. And we won't simply say, well, we've already prayed about this. Rory got this organized. We assembled these packets. Let's just go out and give them. No, like Nehemiah, we have been praying. And in that moment, when a person comes across our path, may we look to God and say, is this the person? Is this someone I should give it to? As I give it to them, may I be gracious. May this bring some grace in their lives. We are always dependent upon God, and we should never forget that. Let's pray together. Father, it's amazing how sinful sin is in our lives. That even when we want to do the right thing, in fact, we may be doing the right thing, somehow we begin to have a sense of independence, that we've got this covered, we're okay. But in reality, moment by moment, day by day, we are dependent upon you. People may oppose us. That's okay. They oppose Jesus and we are followers of his. May we not somehow see ourselves as victims. Sort of bemoan and bewail our situation. But rather recognize it for what it is. Opposition to God. And as we work on this project... We've been praying about this, looking to you for wisdom, for guidance. As we assemble these packets, may we do so with care. As we take them, as we give them out, may we do so prayerfully. Everything we have comes from you. We have nothing that we've gotten on our own. And when we share with others, we are simply sharing what you have given us. And so humbly and graciously and prayerfully, as we come in contact with people you bring across our path, may we do what is right. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you, to worship with brothers and sisters, to sing together to hear your word read and preached. and All these things, we've done it together by your grace. Guide us as we work together assembling these packets after the service. And as we leave, may your spirit and your grace go with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.